Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. People in the U.S. and elsewhere will likely remember January 6th, 2021 for many years to come. And those of us who watched the live footage the entire day will likely remember the feelings that arose within us. Some people have said this was a natural consequence following years of charged rhetoric. Some people may have felt total confusion that what was happening as insurrectionist mobs yelled horrible incitements urged on by famous people who just that very day said things like trial by combat and we shall stop the steal. They may have felt, you know, very confused at what they were seeing. Uh, Listeners of this show might know someone who personally was happy by the breaches at the Capitol. This was a confusing day that will live on in our memories for years to come. January 6th did not particularly surprise me, but I was left with many questions about some of the images I saw broadcast that day. I was pleased when some fantastic analysis began to appear in some of my favorite publication sites, and a really great one caught my eye by Dr. Susanna Crockford. Crockford, who is an anthropologist with interests in spirituality, politics, ecology, economics, and survivalism, released an article called Q Shaman's New Age Radical Right Blend Hints at the Blurring of Seemingly Disparate Categories, which came out via Religion Dispatches. In this conversation, Dr. Crockford and I discussed that article, the imagery and underpinning belief systems within the QAnon world, and some of the most visible figures at the January 6th insurrection. We also discuss her work coming out in her forthcoming book, Ripples of the Universe, which is coming in May of 2021 from the University of Chicago Press, and is also available for pre-order now. You can follow Dr. Crockford at S-U-S Crockford on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Susanna Crockford. Dr. Susanna Crockford, welcome to Classical Ideas. Hello. It is wonderful to have you here. Can you spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit? Sure. So... Yeah, I am an anthropologist. I work mainly on religion and also some politics and then some politics and religion all together. And my specialty, I guess, at the moment that's relevant is that I look at a lot of groups that you might call fringe, like people involved in what you might call new age spirituality, uh, white supremacists, um, survivalists, and kind of so a broad spectrum but kind of what unites them all is that uh it's kind of what you might consider like the far left field of from like the center normal perspective of religion so you are i was looking a little bit at your bio as well and you know as you said you're an anthropologist with religion ecology political economy interests and i'm curious about some of the the backstory there for why you found these areas of interest like what was your academic path like leading you into finding these areas that you now are so curious about Yeah, so it probably started uh, when I was working in a library and I decided I want to go study things like magic and mesmerism and occultism from like a historical perspective. Mm. And I discovered this program in Amsterdam called, uh, it's like the history of Western esotericism and it's a master's program. And it was like only two of these, this particular uh, program, the subject Western esotericism in the whole world. And that was Amsterdam and Exeter. And I'm from the UK, so I didn't really want to go to Exeter. I'd much rather go to Amsterdam. That sounded like more fun. So I went there and I studied there for two years and I studied shamanism, uh, what you might call contemporary Western shamanism, Mm -hmm. uh, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, And I studied mesmerism, the history of mesmerism in Britain and France. And so I was kind of like almost becoming a historian at that point, but my background as an undergrad was in anthropology. So then when I went to do my PhD, I was like, let's try and smush them together somehow. And I thought, how can I study contemporary esotericism now? Well, that's the new age, right? Mostly. Mm. There's some paganism, there's some other things, but like if 
you want to look at contemporary esotericism, I thought the most interesting place that that was happening is in what people call the new age. So I pitched this idea in my PhD proposal to the anthropology department at the London School of Economics, which is like the oldest in, it's, I don't know if it's the oldest in the world, but like they kind of invented fieldwork. It's like very like kind of upper crust British academia. They have these traditions of like thought. So sure. I, I like kind of entered this like weird thought tradition, but with me going, oh yeah, I'm going to study New Ages in Sedona, Arizona, which is weird for an anthropologist, right? Anthropologists go to like Bali, they go to South Asia, they go to Africa, but they don't go study, you know, um, <laughs> a bunch of white people dancing around rocks in Northern Arizona who call themselves things like shamans. Like the term shaman has its whole, a whole different meaning in different places so it was kind of just like a weird thing to study in like an odd place as well what was <laughs> so, it about sedona what like what drew you there oh it was this story okay um so his name was it was a story i read in cnn what can i remember his name though it was so long ago he ran this rainbow warrior workshop in sedona and it became notorious because he did a sweat lodge he did a huge sweat lodge and there these people who paid like $9,000 or something to go on this course. And then because he didn't really know what he was doing, three people died in that mm. sweat lodge. So it was in national news. And he, he kind of called himself a shaman, I think. He was trying to do a Lakotas sweat lodge, but he uh, you know, made it from the wrong materials, kept people in there too long. And this was in Sedona. And so I kind of found that through the reporting on this case, this really tragic case. And then I was like, what's this place? They have these vortexes, you know, well, this is really interesting. So I kind of found the location for what I was looking for in terms of like, how do I study contemporary esotericism as an anthropologist? And I'm amazed I got funding, which in the UK is really hard. Like there's not a lot of money available to do doctoral studies in anthropology. So it was kind of this really, it was like this really weird fluky long shot as well. And then, that's what I did. And I went and lived in Sedona for two years uh, doing participant uh, observation field, which is basically like you hang out with people and you try and learn about them and you kind of do what they do. So I spent two years being like a new age hippie, if you want to call it that. They would, of course, never call themselves that. Right. Um, that's something I learned very quickly. Nice. OK, well, and and is that the field work that led to your forthcoming book, which is coming out this May from the University of Chicago called Ripples of the Universe in the Class 200 series? Yes, exactly. So that book is about that research I did in Sedona. Nice. Tell me a little bit about the book. I know it's not coming out for about another six months or so, um, but I you know I think getting people excited about this book is uh would be pretty cool because of the moment that we're all living through right now. It's January. We're just past the inauguration. We've seen some some very interesting things happen in the past couple of weeks as far as the history of the United States goes. But I feel like this book might have a, a piece in that conversation. Um, tell us a little bit about like the structure of the book and what people can expect to find inside of it. So the book is out in May, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, I've got to double check the publication date. I just submitted the final. Woo. So I think it should be out in May. Um, and what it is, is it's kind of an exploration of spirituality in Sedona. So when I was just talking about New Age a moment ago, what they call it is spirituality. Um, and they had this idea that you kind of go on a spiritual path and how you discern that spiritual path is up to you. Um, so I studied lots of different practices and lots of little bits. And the book kind of reflects these various different things that I found. It's more based on themes, I would say, than like specific topics. Like, um, so it kind, of, it kind of begins with this kind of generalized description of something I kind of pulled together just from being there of like an idea of there being cosmologies of spirituality. So when a lot of people who have written about New Age in the past have written about it, they've been kind of like, well, it's very non-formative. It's really hard to say how to define it, but it involves things like, you know, people are into astrology and Wicca, and then they kind of group all these disparate elements together and say, well, this is New Age. So it kind of has this like 
blobby effect in its conceptualization. It, it wasn't very clear. And so I tried to kind of sketch this cosmology of spirituality, which you really need to read the book rather than me sit here and explain it, because it's kind of dense and it kind of gets into the more mystical aspects of like trying to create this, uh, trying to go on this path at least to like uh, oneness with the universe and the universe being a divinity and, the, and, and the, what it's composed of is energy and all energy vibrates at a certain frequency. And then kind of once you've got this like vague, basic, very basic structure of the cosmologies, I kind of talk about these different aspects of spirituality and Sedona. So there's one uh, chapter that's all about people who think they're aliens. They mm. call star seeds. There's another chapter all about food and diet. There's a chapter about conspiracy theories. And it's probably that last one that is most, uh, gives the most insight, I guess I would say, into what we're going through now, because that chapter is called What is Wrong with America? <laughs> and it's about the counter narrative of conspiracy theories. And this is something that totally surprised me. Like there's, there's subjects in the book, like the first chapter is basically about nature and the vortexes. And I, I knew I would find it in Sedona, right? From the things I'd read about it in the past, from the idea I had about New Age spirituality from the existing literature, I was like, nature's a big deal. The vortexes are these special energy and it's all about the rocks, right? That the rocks emit this energy, right? It's like, uh, so it comes behind this kind of like spiraling zone of um, energy. And that's why they think it's special and sacred, right? And that's why all these various different things are said to happen there and why different people are drawn there. Um, and they go there specifically to follow this path. It's kind of, they talk about the energy calling them there. So that was all very expected. But then one thing that really wasn't expected was then when they started talking about things like chemtrails and they would mm. just say things like, oh, I think they've been spraying a lot today. And I'd be like, what? What does, what does that like? Like, it's just a normal comment about the weather. And chemtrails is this idea that when you see the airplane contrails in the air, that those contain what they call heavy metals but the examples of this is, is things like uh, aluminum and barium. And um, they, so they say that they're sprayed by airplanes into the atmosphere on purpose uh, for mind control or weather control. Um, and I thought, well, this is very strange. Mm. Um, and it was not what I expected at all. And the more I kind of thought about it and the more I learned about it, the more I kind of created this idea of it being uh, a counter narrative that just like whatever is put out there by what they consider the mainstream, they oppose it. So it's not surprising that now, if you kind of, that was like what, 2012 to 2014, I was there, you kind of jump forward to now, 2020, uh, 2021, and the people in Sedona that I knew then are the people now who are saying that, you know, COVID is a hoax uh, and they, they kind of are denying the existence or the uh, severity there's different types of denial, but so that it's kind of continued and it's extrapolated and it's grown. Um, so that what I described in the book, I feel like I'm describing something in its kind of nascent form. And now what we're living through now is like kind of the monster when it's born, you know, it's mm. burst out of the chest. <laughs> yeah. Well, and all of those things that you just said, I feel really capture the events uh, of something that's become really well known in the last couple of weeks since the events at the U.S. Capitol. And the way I found your work is because you have a recent article out that caught my eye about the storming of the Capitol by the MAGA fringe, by white supremacy extremists, by fascists, by QAnon conspiracy theorists and more. And in there, um, you wrote an article called Q Shaman's New Age Radical Right Blends Hints at the Blurring of Seemingly Disparate Categories, which there's a lot there in that title alone. Um, but I think that now everybody has quite a clear understanding of who this Q shaman person is. Um, but before we get into the article and the events of January 6th, I'm, I'm curious, you know, how your attention on these groups has developed in the last five years or so, because you said that you were in Arizona in 2012 to 2014, but 2015, we have the emergence of the, the uh, candidacy and then the presidency of Donald Trump, which has, you know, pushed things in new directions, if you will. Um, so what has your attention been like over the last couple of years, like uh, while you've been tracking these groups? 
Yeah, so I left Arizona in 2014 for the end of my first period of field work. I was back for six months in 2015 and in 2016. 2017, I was not in the US much at all. And then I was back in 2018 for two months. So I've kind of been back and forth in it for periods of time over the interviewing years. And so I've kind of had this, I think there's something a lot more jarring about change when it's somewhere you're coming back and forth to. Like if you see something all the time, you may not notice it happening, but mm-hmm. it was really stuck to me coming back in like 2016. And especially when I came back in 2018, just how much more these kind of, the symbols and their like effects of Donald Trump in the landscape were like, you know, people with like bumper stickers on their car with like government sponsored right wing extremists. Um, and, and I think because I come to Arizona that you, I, you see kind of, you see a lot of the pro Trump side that and I, for example, I've also like been to Oregon and Missouri and Louisiana on field work in that period as well. And in some of those places, like I, this is kind of, you can see the difference in different places, I don't know. And in Arizona, it's very strong in rural Arizona, you know, there's suddenly like, there's all these more, there's more Confederate flags, there's more Trump flags. It, it, it's kind of in your face um, in a way, which say, for example, when I'm in Oregon, I didn't feel that same way. Mm, interesting, um, well, and, and you so mentioned tra- Missouri. Yeah. Which is where I'm from. I'm originally from oh Missouri. Gosh. Yeah. Where are you from in Missouri? Uh, I'm originally from St. Louis, but I spent many years uh, living in Columbia, right in the center of the state between Kansas City and St. Louis. Cool. Yeah. So I was in St. Louis and then in like some of the kind of uh, like the rural hinterland around there, like Fenton. That's uh, Fenton is where I went to high school. Oh my God, really? That's, that's so, <laughs> what a small world. I can't believe wow. we're discovering this. Yeah, I, I, I lived for 18 years in Fenton, Missouri. Wow. Yep. That's, I'm, my mind is blown right here, <laughs> right on the podcast. What did you find in Fenton? So Fenton was kind of interesting. I wasn't there very long. I was just doing interviews. So I wasn't doing this kind of long-term, uh, long-term participant observation field work that I do in Arizona, for example. Uh, I did like a kind of limited scope project where I did interviews in, in Arizona, but also in uh, coastal Louisiana and then, yeah, in Missouri. And I wanted to go to Missouri because there was lots of flooding there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, so that was a project I was doing where what I was focusing on was climate change, like uh, kind of the language of religion and eschatology in climate change. So all this talk about apocalypse and the end of the world. Um, but also kind of when you look at other forms of language about kind of sin and redemption and how these kind of ideas are bound up and uh, kind of our ideas of human nature and why then we kind of make these assumptions about like, well, this was bound to happen. We need prosperity. It's like that it becomes inevitable. And I kind of wanted to kind of tease out how the religious language was part of this kind of assumption of inevitability in the way we've treated our planet. Um, so I went to Fenton, Missouri as part of this, which <laughs> I can't believe it. Um, because I was looking for people who denied climate change, right? I was mm-hmm. I was looking for climate change deniers. And I I have some friends in St. Louis and I gauged from the stories that they told me of like that rural hinterland around the city of St. Louis itself was a good place to find people who would not believe in climate change. And, and they were correct. <laughs> they were correct. It was... Um, Lots of farming communities, lots of very kind of like practical people, lots of very strongly Christian people, not necessarily all like there was some like quite cynical attachments I found as well, but like also some very, very committed attachments uh, to various strands of Christianity. So it was a fascinating place. Wow. Amazing. I cannot believe that you've been to my my hometown. Yeah. I talked to someone in a bar who I'm pretty sure had Aryan Brotherhood tattoos. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, wow, interesting. Okay, well, um, that was a nice little tangent where you discovered a place that I'm from. Um, oh, that's funny. Considering you're from, you know, the other side of the world, and you wound up in my hometown researching climate change denial, that is hilarious. Yeah. Well, interesting. Okay, so um, let's get into a little bit of the article here um, about um, Q shaman and the role that he played in this um, attempted uh, of this insurrection that we all witnessed on live television a couple of weeks ago. Um, But before we get into that, what is QAnon? How big is QAnon? How mainstream is this thing in our society? 
So QAnon is this uh, kind of wide-ranging conspiracy theory that really draws together several kind of strands that were already existing, but kind of amalgamates them under the kind of, they're called drops. It's posts on an image board called Aitken that started off as 4chan, it became 8chan, now it's Aitken. And these drops are just like cryptic posts on this message board. Um, I just want to say it, it's, you know, it can is not regular internet use that anyone that's listening who isn't like a serious kind of kind of committed, <laughs> committed to research with me, me. You shouldn't go to this message board. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible, terrible place on the internet where people say terrible things and post terrible images. So I want to give that warning. I'm not in any way saying anyone should go looking for these uh, for these uh, images at the source, but what it is is that they do they make they drop these images they, they drop, drop these messages sorry on this image board um, and they're from someone who just identifies themselves as Q the letter Q it's meant to stand for Q clearance uh, which is like the highest level of military intelligence clearance in the U.S. military there are rumors that Q is in or was in Trump's inner circle or that he is Trump himself. On the fringes, you've got some people who will say that Q is an alien of some kind, like an Arcturan, and that's kind of where I first started to get. I first heard of Q about a year ago, and it was through someone uh, that I'm connected to via Facebook who says that they're a starseed. Uh, so one of these people I mentioned who believe they're an alien. And I thought, well, that's weird. This is awfully right wing. <laughs> mm. And that really led me down the rabbit hole about a year ago. So I've been tracking Q for, yeah, about a year now. I'm not as serious as some people are researchers in tracking Q. Like there's some guys out there who are really spending a lot of time reading these drops and reading all the interpretations of it and the reposts and everything. So you should really go to their work if you want a deep dive on Q itself. But in brief terms, the drops that are done by Q describe a kind of cabal or a secret group in the elites in government, Hillary Clinton, obviously, uh, also Hollywood, the media, uh, all kinds of other kind of uh, zones of the economy. And all of these elites are involved in a child trafficking scheme. They like the adrenochrome, which is the adrenal gland. It's uh, in the Sorry, it's all nonsense and I hate describing it. But yeah, so there's like, they believe that you can get the substance from the adrenal gland, you can make adrenochrome, you can get really super high off it. And there's also rumors of cannibalism. Uh, so it's, it's really awful in its core mythology. Um, and so there's a few themes I kind of would rather pick out than describing it in any more detail than I just did. That's so fine. you've got things like, okay, there's like the, the cabals are in charge. Um, this comes from things like Protocols of the Elders of Zion. You've got uh, rumors of children being used in satanic rituals. You've got the, so you've got kind of your satanic witch craze uh, theme there. So there's like elements of moral panic, elements of anti-Semitism. Um, it's very strongly Republican in terms of pro-Trump, but there are other Republicans who are considered traitors. Um, so people who are working for the cabal are traitors, people who support Q are called patriots. The patriots see themselves as a form of spiritual and, and especially digital war against the, the traitors who are kind of evil and demonic and in some kind of alien inflected, uh, they're called reptilians, uh, which is kind of a David Icke conspiracy theory. David Icke is a British author now um, who comes up with a lot of this kind of uh, kind of gray aliens, reptilians working behind ground, uh, behind the scenes. And that's like, you know, all the famous people in the world are actually reptilians. And um, so that, yeah, like I was saying, there's kind of older themes being drawn into Q and kind of it's, the thing about QAnon and why it's become so popular and big is because I think it has the capacity to absorb anything. Like it's not exclusivist, like pretty much anything can be absorbed into the larger mythology of QAnon so it kind of became this like uber conspiracy theorist theory that like swallowed up all the previous elements that had been disparate and that's why you can find things like kind of 
alien believing new ages on the same side as these very strong Christian nationalists who talk about like the armor of God and fighting the holy war against, you know. And so that you can kind of inflect Q either way. You can look into it as more of a kind of very committed Christian or you can actually come at it as someone who you might identify as into new age spirituality, which is very interesting. I yeah. guess that's one way to put it. I also find it deeply concerning because I think you mentioned how big is it? I mean, no one really knows how big it is, right? Because it's not like a club or a membership, right? It's just, you can go to this message board and you can read the drops. You can make your own interpretations. And more so now um, is you follow one of the influencers. So I think a lot of the people who are reposting Q content now don't ever go to the original messages or the message board. They look at aggregator sites. Um, there, a lot of these have been taken down now, but they were basically like websites, but also YouTube channels, but also Twitter accounts that would aggregate the cue drops and repost them in fora that could then be seen by a wider audience, right? Because you you know you have to go to Aitken to get there, right? Yeah. Whereas Twitter, it will just appear in your feed or it'll just appear in your like videos, your YouTube video feed and say you were already watching things about ancient aliens and then, oh yeah, you'll, you'll suddenly go on to the next thing and it'll be slightly more, slightly more. And then it kind of drives you down the rabbit hole. Mm. Well, Suzanne, I'm so interested um, to hear about your day on January 6th <laughs> because I know how I know what my experience was. I was essentially glued to the screen watching things happen. I interviewed Megan Goodwin um, to have her on the podcast. And then the second we got off the phone, my phone starts blowing up saying there was a breach at the Capitol. And then that was essentially the rest of my day was just watching this footage. And I'm curious about your day. Um, you know, all these things that you've researched the last couple of years, when did you start noticing the signs? What were you seeing when you were watching the footage? Tell me about your experience of viewing January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. Oh, gosh. So I didn't notice until about halfway through the day because my son does online school. Mm -hmm. So and he's five and he really can't do it on his own. So I was kind of doing mom stuff essentially until uh, about midday and then I looked at my phone and like you were saying it was like all these it was just suddenly it's one of those events that occurred through several different social media like channels at the same time like I was getting messages from it about from my family in England about it at the same time as I was looking at all these things on Facebook and Twitter about it and then I was just like I guess this is one of those days where I just have to watch CNN and look at the New York Times feed you know, I didn't, I like to go to like the more, most direct news media source. Um, researching what I do, you can spend a lot of time in like alternate media ecosystems and everything is distorted. And so often my, my social media feeds, especially my, my Facebook is very much like, I have to be like, I don't know where that's from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so sometimes when I start reading things about attacks, especially, because a lot of the people I know from my work, from my research, do repost conspiracy theory content. I'm quite skeptical about anything I see on social media. But when there was enough signals in like my family in England who were just, you know, regular people kind of, and I was like, okay, look, I'm just gonna stare at the New York Times for hours and CNN. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I'm kind of looking at all the ways it's being reposted and recreated in these other alternative kind of online circles that I know of. And it was really interesting to watch the different narratives emerge um, and how quickly things like, you know, Jake Angeli got called a crisis actor, which is what they always say. Whenever there's any kind of large scale attack, it there's, you know, there's always crisis actors. There's always the false flag. What's the real motive? Uh, some of them can be quite disheartening. I can remember around Sandy Hook the kind of Sandy Hook truther reposts, I actually had to kind of delete a couple of people because I was just like, I don't, you have to draw your lines and you have to right. kind of maintain your, <laughs> your own mental wellness, especially when you're, you're looking at this kind of content for your work. Um, but yeah, so it was the same kind, it was the same ex explanations. It was the same themes over and again. So I was, and then, yeah, just kind of watching it with everyone else, but I kind of turned off at one point because I had to record a lecture. Um, so that was my day. Mm. Well, and and then you then and then after in the aftermath, you wrote this article which came out in Religion Dispatches, and 
I want to talk about this a little bit because you know Jake Angeli has been a really uh, prominent figure in the news the last couple of weeks, and obviously he's um, locked up right now. Um, yeah. But your article discusses arguably the most visible figure of the whole entire day, which is Jake Angeli, who has been known throughout the media for the last couple of weeks as the QAnon shaman. He, I mean, Stephen Colbert talked about him like he's been everywhere. Um, and I have been perturbed and annoyed by the usage of shaman to describe Angeli. Um, and, you know, before we dive into what we know about his beliefs, uh, the symbolism that he carries with him um, and the, the tattoos on his body and things like that. Uh, can you just tell everybody kind of like what a, a shaman actually is um, and, and maybe distinguish like, you know, uh, shame, a Western shaman from otherwise uh, what would be commonly known as shamans as well? Yeah, so this is actually a really complicated question that I've written on quite a lot. So what I'm going to say now is a condensed and probably not as eloquent version of things that I've written and published on shamanism. Okay. So basically, most people, when they talk about shamans, they get a lot of it wrong. And I also feel like I'm going to then qualify what I mean by wrong, because it's one of those terms where you think you know what it means, but actually you probably don't. And then when you learn a bit more about what it means, you then suddenly realize actually you still don't know what it means. So I feel like the short answer to you, like, can you tell us what a shaman is, is no. Okay. <laughs> because it's such a polyvalent symbol. It's been used in so many different ways that it kind of loses any sense of kind of coherency as a word. So if I go back etymologically, a shaman is a specifically uh, a kind of religious practitioner, if you will, in a broad sense, in uh, Evenki, uh, Siberian indigenous tribes. Mm. Okay. Um, and it was, I think the word is, I, I probably can't pronounce it probably, but it's like shaman, right? And the, and the, the shaman or the shaman was this uh, individual who the community recognized as being a shaman because they had a kind of traumatic uh, episode which kind of looks like a mental health crisis. And some people, they would say, well, they're having a mental health crisis, whatever their equivalent of what that term was. And they would be treated as mad. But some were treated as shaman and they went on to serve the community, okay? So they would do practice that involved like channeling spirits to uh, answer people's questions. And these were often questions about kind of dealing with the vagaries of everyday life in the situation they lived in. You know, should I, should I go hunting today? You know, is this a good time to get married? Um, and then this word got picked up by European explorers into the interior of Russia. And it got channeled back to the courts and the kind of literate circles of Europe, who then started talking about these kind of wild and savage people and their strange shamans. So there was a lot of exoticism and racism in the way this trope was then taken up and reproduced in European literary circles. Um, and then you get to the 20th century and you get writers like Mircea Eliade, who was a Romanian uh, historian of religion, but he worked mostly at the University of Chicago. He was, a, he moved to America. And he describes something called shamanism. His book is called Shamanism. And it's like archaic techniques of ecstasy. And he described this figure of the shaman as something that is found cross-culturally and worldwide. And it's a category and you can find it at the root of all religion. And this way of describing shaman then just, uh, got taken up uh, by especially kind of uh, academic studies of religion and an in anthropology through the 60s and 70s. And you get people like Michael Hanna. Now, Michael Hanna was an anthropologist and he later went on to found a school. I think it's the International School of Shamanic Studies. And he described something called core shamanism, which is very, it's kind of an evolution of what Eliada says, but he describes specific practices and he moves from just describing shamanism to advocating shamanism. And then later on, he leaves the academy and he just full-time becomes a kind of salesman for shamanic uh 
kind of courses and but learning how to do the rituals through like kind of doing these weekly courses or you kind of go to somewhere beautiful for three days and they teach you how to do things like vision quests and the way of the council and it's all kind of very decontextualized like so some of the rituals are taken from say plains indians traditions but it's kind of stripped of that context so it doesn't really look like anything that any existent plains uh, indian or native american tribe would do um, and then this became shamanism. And then the interesting thing that happened is that people from this school started teaching people who used to have shamans, for example, the Sami in uh, northern uh, Finland and northern Norway. They started to learn how to be shamans again through the Michael Hanna School of Shamanism. So in some places, Michael Hanna shamanism, which you can also call core shamanism, is seen as quite problematic. Like, and I think in the US, they're in certain... Uh, certain indigenous people think he's very problematic. But then in other places where for other indigenous peoples, his work and the work of the people who've gone through his schools and his courses has been seen as very positive and very beneficial. Um, so it's not just one thing. And it's, it's kind of very easy to sit back and then look at James, someone like Jacob Adgeley and say, oh, well, he's not a shaman, um, right? Because he's this white guy from Phoenix, Arizona, wearing these like furry kind of horn ensemble that looks more like he got it from party town than it has anything to do with any existent indigenous tradition and i would say definitively what he does has practically nothing to do with any living indigenous tradition um, but does that mean he's not a shaman well who is a shaman uh, you know uh, is it only people from the Evenki tribe of siberia but the world is now incredibly common for example amerindian practices they use the word shaman um mm. And, and anthropologists of that area just unproblematically call them shamans and, and, and it's not seen as an issue there. Um, so it's incredibly complex. Um, and I personally don't like to set myself up at the arbiter as to say, you are a shaman. Right. I don't think that's my job. Oh, of course not. All I, all I can tell you is this is how this person describes what they do. And there are many people like Jake Angeli in places like Arizona, white people, who are English speakers who probably grew up in some form of Christianity, then have this, uh, they call it an awakening experience often, but not necessarily, but they go into what they call a spiritual path and then they call themselves a shaman. Mm. And they yeah. often things like shamanic journeying sessions, which is a Michael Hanna practice. And they, you know, they do vision quests um, and, and people have experiences doing those things. Yeah, something that was really fascinating to me about your article is that I didn't know anything about him, obviously, um, until he popped up on the news. But, you know, I found in your article that he describes himself as a shaman. Uh, it's a self-identified term. But then your article went so deep into like New Age healing and um some of his beliefs, and you linked to an interview that he gave about a year ago. And where he we talks about many of the details of his own spiritual path, and it was not what I expected at all. So how does? Yeah. And then you mentioned how you can come at QAnon from multiple different angles, like from a, a Christian nationalist perspective or like a more New Age perspective. And Angelie's coming at it from the New Age perspective. Mm -hmm. How do you like How does he describe what his spiritual path is that led him to these to to becoming a Q um, you know follower? So it's quite interesting the way he describes his uh, shamanic practice. He says he's been walking it for 20 years. Now he's about 30 years old. So that means he's been walking since he's about 10 or 11. Um, and what, another thing he says is that it's something he realized later that he had been walking it for that long. And he describes having a difficult childhood. And then at the age of, the, uh, of 11, uh, smoking, I think it's probably marijuana, but doing drugs with his dad, which obviously is not great parenting. Um, but what Angeli describes it as, as the start of his walking the shamanic path. Now, this is very common in the kind of awakening stories that I've heard from people, especially people who think that they are starseeds, uh, which is, so a starseed is someone who thinks they have an alien consciousness in their human body. And this is something that Jake Angeli also describes himself as, as well as being a shaman. And that starseeds will have this in common in their, in their child, it, they will have some element of childhood trauma and they will have some element of 
um, uh, kind of often like a, a some element of drug use. Um, I don't want to say it's all while well, they're under the influence, but it, it's kind of there. And this is this is kind of like similar to. <laughs> I did the big thing about how diverse shamanism is. Shamanism cross-culturally, there's often the use of psychedelic drugs, right? Mm. So then Angeli goes on to describe his uh, spiritual path as being the kind of exploration of consciousness using psychedelic drugs, which is, you know, this goes back to people like Terence McKenna in the 60s, uh, you know, with a whole range of psychedelic plants, some of the beat poets who were doing things like Yahe. So it's, this is really common in the kind of elements that people who are into neo-shamanism uh, that they they, they they draw from, you see, because they kind of draw off symbols and practices from all different uh, cultures around the world that they identify with. Um, so the, the, a lot of people were like, how could, you know, like, it's ridiculous. He's a shaman and a starseed and he's into Q. But actually, yes, he's a shaman and a starseed and he's into Q. These things actually all draw from the same currents in contemporary American religion. They're not mutually exclusive. Like the first person, I think, as I mentioned, uh, that introduced me to Q via a Facebook post uh, also called himself a starseed and also channeled like other beings from, you know, he described them as alien beings from other dimensions. Um, so uh, for me, Jake Angeli was kind of a representative of a type. And uh, like, I think I mentioned it when we were just chatting at the outside, like not just a, a type in neurospirituality, but a type in Arizona, which mm. is just like, loudly publicly aggressively religious man they're always men who's just like shouting at some kind of event where there's lots of people um but, you know and jake angeli is literally that guy like a lot of the footage is actually from the arizona republic our local news source of him at protests just you know with his bullhorn or with his super loud voice or with his drum he drums and he chants you know that's more of his, uh, his shamanic practice and he does this at protests and then you saw him doing that at the capitol mm. um and as to why like QAnon specifically he was into that you know, I don't know if I've read that anywhere that he had a moment where he goes, you know, and I came across QAnon on the internet and I, you know, that's how I knew it was true. He more says, you know, that he does his research uh, online. And so, you know, I can absolutely imagine someone kind of this, you know, if it's not Jake Adley, it's like the type of guy who kind of fits that, that pattern where he kind of grows up, he's got this very troubled home life, he's doing all kinds of drugs. And then he's watching YouTube videos and, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, ancient aliens. I think the pyramids were built by aliens and not by, you know, ancient Egyptians, you know. And then the next video, what is it? It's something about the satanic conspiracy controlling all world events. And you're like, well, they were already hiding all that stuff about the pyramids from me. So what else were they hiding from mm. me? And then suddenly you're in QAnon. And I think he has, an he has some very strong elements of being raised as a Christian. That's not something I've actually managed to confirm yet. Um, but he likely, like, you know, he references like that his faith in Jesus Christ commonly, for example. Mm. So, and these things that you can combine these because in New Age spirituality, Jesus is like another kind of revered figure. I think it's more that like the people who would be on the more like Christian nationalist side of, of the QAnon movement wouldn't necessarily see the other things as Jake, that Jake Angeli does as compatible. I think that's where the disjuncture might be. Um, and it's kind of interesting that there's a video of them when they're inside the, I think it's the Senate chamber and he starts doing a Christian prayer. Like he starts off doing his kind of like his, his yell, his shamanic call that he does at all the protests in Arizona. And someone tells him to knock it off. Cause that's like not what they're about. But then he starts doing this really great, like Christian prayer. Like it's like a flawless delivery. And in the sense that you kind of get the sense that he's done that before. Uh, a lot so I think he has all those elements in his background and then it just kind of swirled together uh with all this like uh kind of all of the online uh material he's reading you know they're always saying do your research in queue this is a very common across conspiracy theories generally like if you disagree with them it's like well you do your research you know I've done my research and they have so much stuff that they've brought in and so much information, it's it's a little overwhelming trying to- Yeah, well, and something that I think a lot of people will be thinking of is earlier you said that within Q, patriots are a very specific group of people. Yes. And when we saw the video of Angeli walk into the chamber that he walks into that was published recently by The New Yorker, 
he walks in and he says, oh, hey, you guys, you're Patriots, aren't you? So I feel like that's a really specific thing that he said that may not have been interpreted by everybody uh, in the way that he meant it. I mean, it's a code. It's like saying, hey, you guys, I'm into QAnon too. I'm part of your group. Mm. So it's like he identifies himself as a member of the group yeah. for acceptance. And often that's done with external symbols. Like if he'd looked more traditionally MAGA, he probably wouldn't even need to say that because it would be implied um, being where he was and had being dressed in that way. But because he's kind of a bit alternate, you know, with the tattoos and the shirtlessness and the, the horns, he then, you know, has to identify himself. Yeah. Uh, that was so interesting. I just made that little connection and I'm feeling like, whoa. Um, so in the article, you also mentioned his many tattoos, the Yggdrasil, the Mjolnir, the Volnot, um, Norse neo-pagan symbols. Um, and, you know, I've had an Alsatru high priest on this podcast before, and he and I discussed the co-opting of symbols by like white supremacist groups within Alsatru and how challenging that's been for, for their practices. But uh, I'm curious, what what do you think people need to know about the tattoo symbolism found um, within Anjali and maybe other groups? Like, wh- how important are tattoos here? So I think, I feel like people focus a lot on the tattoos because they're so visually striking, but I also feel like overly focusing on the significance of his tattoo is, is possibly misdirection. Mm. Like, I, I think maybe we've all thought about Jake Anjali's tattoos way more than he ever did. But I will say this. So... Yes, the, the tattoos, the Mjolnir, the Yggdrasil, and the, the Vatnut, they are tattoos that have associations with white supremacist groups. But just because you have those tattoos doesn't mean you're a racist. It doesn't necessarily mean you're not, though. Um, so it's kind of like, do you see what I mean? Like, there are definitely, there is, yeah, there's a Satru groups which are explicitly anti-racist because of the association with the Satru groups who are white supremacist. Um, so there's both. And, you know, it's either or. I mean, Jake Angeli's also into Q. He also supports Trump. You know, all this circumstantial evidence together points towards a strong commitment to white supremacism, right? Um, but you kind of have to give that disclaimer with some of the kind of Norse-inspired tattoos. Um, and also just tattooing in general. Like, it, it's not necessarily as much of a commitment to a specific... Uh, tradition in a strong way you know there's no suggestion I think so far that Jake Angeli is an Odinist or he is in a Sartre like there's I don't think there's any suggestions that he just wears the symbols he has like this Greek symbol too on his shoulder he has it looks like the wall I hope it's the wall like he loves Trump so much he tattooed the border wall on his on his arms but again like one thing I kind of got used to in Arizona with people's tattooing is it doesn't like <laughs> I'm sorry I just seen so I when I, there's also like the symbol 1111 I once saw someone who literally had that symbol all over their arm it was just 1111s like it's this repeated number it's now been absorbed into QAnon but the the idea is if you see 1111 on displays then it's it's kind of a it's a sign that you're waking up right so there's this this whole kind of imagery of most people, me and you, normies, right? We're asleep, we're the sheeple. And once you see the truth, you're awake, then, then you know, you, you kind of see all of these interconnected conspiracy theories as the truth, right? Um, and so 11.11 is meant to be like the symbol and you start seeing it on clocks and that's how one of the signs you should take that you're awakening and you're starting to see the truth of, you know, extraterrestrials and, and also Q. Um, but do you see what I mean? So I feel like, yeah, he may have just come across these symbols. I think in the article, I even talk about like how he looks like a couple of video game characters as well. Cause I feel like, I feel like he's maybe like saw them and thought they were cool. Mm. <laughs> but that's speculation on my part. I don't know. He might have like a, a far more deep commitment uh, to Norse mythology than we know about so far. Yeah. But it's kind of part of the potpourri of uh, practices that he puts together. On yeah. Well, work. And I also get the impression from your article that some of these people might see what we've just lived through as a religious war in some way. And oh, yeah. you you said the term digital soldier earlier, um, which to me is like people standing around crane with their necks craned down, staring at their phones while they're sitting on the toilet, most likely. But, you know, 
Can you tell me a little bit about any kind of spiritual calling they may think they have at this particular moment and why they equate, you know, being on their phones with being soldiers? Yes. So this is incredibly strong in QAnon and in just in Christian nationalism more widely, this idea that we are currently at war. It is a spiritual war, good versus evil. Um, they are obviously the side of good in their own estimation, right? And that they are soldiers fighting this war. And you will see, like I saw this QAnon video. Oh, I wonder if I can send it to you. It probably got taken down. It was actually on Parler. Um, but it got sent around like immediately after the Capitol siege. And it was, it was kind of all this like, it was Trump's speeches, but it was put together to sound dramatic and a bit like a sermon. And it had things like the wearing the armor of God, like this is an Ephesians reference. And this is incredibly common in Christian nationalism and it's kind of spiritual warfare talking charismatics and stuff um, that you wear your armor of God to go out and do battle against, uh, you know, the, the forces of darkness, which is, you know, you know, the, you know, the liberals and <laughs> the Democrats and Hillary Clinton and everyone else that's against them. Um, so this language is incredibly strong. And in QAnon specifically, the Anons, right? So Q is the guy doing the drops. The Anons are all the other people on the message board because everyone comes up as anonymous and then a number. So that's why they're called the Anons and they put it together, it makes QAnon, right? Mm. And so the Anons are digital soldiers fighting the war of good versus evil, you know? Trump, by the way, is on the side of good. He's like their messiah figure leading them to victory against the deep state by tweeting a lot. So, you know, this idea, this image you gave of like the digital soldier on the toilet and it's right, that's not so far from the truth. But it's also like, I guess you could kind of describe that as a stereotype we could apply to like the main body of Q followers, right? But there are also people who are maybe not so into Q, but they're in this whole kind of pro-Trump, spiritual war, Christian nationalist, larger field. And they're, they're much more predisposed to actual in real life violence. Um, so it's kind of easy on the one, it's easy on the one hand to say, ha ha ha, look at them and their digital soldiers retweeting to like fight the battle. But on the other hand, this is, there is actual violence happening here. We saw it at the Capitol siege. We saw it with the threat on the governor of Michigan. Um, so there are elements within this whole wider field. You know, there's the militia, there's what they call the Boogaloo Boys now. Do, should I explain what that is? It, that's up to you. I Yeah, I'm even not sure. Oh, okay. So the Boogaloo Boys are people who basically met through shitposting on internet message boards about the, a new civil, uh, the next civil war. They think there's going to be another civil war. And they started calling it as a joke, the Boogaloo, after it's a movie, something about something to electric Boogaloo. And then they just, it just became like a meme, like, oh yeah, when the boogaloo happens, it's like in Survivalist, they talk about when the shit hits the fan, but they just abbreviated to SHTF. Um, so these kind of memes became equivalent, I think, in these kind of discourses online. And now people who call themselves the boogaloo boys have started coming to these Trump protests, these pro-Trump protests, these anti kind of election uh, protests uh, in Hawaiian shirts, wearing, carrying assault rifles, to try and help create basically chaos because that's it's it's like a form of nihilism um and this is where i start to get it starts to get a lot more more serious you know it's not just people playing digital soldier on their phone it's people actually arming and coming to attack government buildings to, to, to threaten government figures. Like in, in Arizona, our secretary of state was being threatened. In Georgia, the secretary of state was being threatened. Um, you know, so the capital siege was, uh, it was kind of like the eruption of all of these kind of pressures that were coming up from all these different angles and they've been coming for a while. Like when I first came here in 2012, someone told me that the civil war was coming and I was like, oh, come on you know <laughs> like it seemed so unlikely I, I like many people had grown up in a prolonged period of like relative peace in Europe and in um, America so the idea of a civil war just seemed fanciful to me and I just it they, they're saying it more and more and more and the circles in which it's being said are expanding since that time when I first heard it and that's an element of of the spiritual war too um, oh people who are actually arming themselves i mean and militia are paramilitary groups and i don't think that you can discount the danger 
when you have paramilitary groups in your country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were roadblocks in Oregon. Uh, gosh, it was around the time of the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, because mm-hmm. they said that they had to protect themselves from Antifa coming out of Portland. Antifa oh is like a big, it's part of the big lie, right? That there's these violent Antifa uh, terrorists is what they call them. Yeah, Timothy Snyder's been writing about the big lie a lot lately, and he's been doing a really good job on, uh, yeah. he wrote a great article in the New York Times called American Abyss recently that I really loved. His On yes. Tyranny book is wonderful. Um, I saw that. Really interesting. Well, and, you know, there's a lot going on here as well. And, you know, a lot of normal people in our country who would be called the sheeple by people who are heavily involved in some of these groups. Um, You know, there's like a a theme of like being asleep or awake and the sheeple dwelling in their sleepiness or whatever. And, you know, when someone might push back on being called a sheeple, an easy reply that you mentioned earlier is that we don't do enough research. And I've personally talked to quite a few folks about this and I was spoken to like I was an immature, unthinking uh, drone, essentially. I've been called a sheeple. I've been called a demon rat. Tell me about how regular people who don't live in the world of doing quote-unquote research are viewed. Like, how are we viewed if we're not involved in these things? Well, you're asleep, right? Yeah, you're part of the sheeple. You're, you're gullible. You believe anything. I got told that I... I don't really know what I know. (laughs) You know, I may have all these years of like scholarship and publications and, you know, I may do this as my job, but I don't really know what I know because I just believe the lie, right? And this is where it gets to be a really kind of dangerous and difficult and complicated situation because if someone just automatically discounts you and everything you have to say there's pretty much nothing you can say to them that's going to change their minds so then how do you help people say you have people that you know who are invested in QAnon how can you talk to them and it's incredibly difficult um and I unfortunately don't have any easy answers or handy hints on how to go about this because all the research suggests that if you present people who believe in conspiracy theorists with facts they double down on the lie that they already believed. Um, so change is slow and it, it's very personal and it's very different for different people. And I can kind of relate it best to the work I've done in new religious movements and like when groups fall apart or when people leave groups, especially what we call high conflict or kind of high pressure groups. We don't say cults, because that's a pejorative term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just one of these terms that are kind of just like thrown around to describe groups you don't like. Like a lot of people are calling Q a cult. A lot of people are calling anyone who supports Trump a cult. And I don't think, like, if we want to come at this from a perspective of like uh, not having this poisonous atmosphere between two sides, I think that maybe calling people who support Trump occult is not particularly helpful. It's not. Um, I agree. It, uh, you know, and but I, I don't know. I also think that it's an incredibly harmful, like it's an incredibly harmful group and it's an incredibly harmful set of beliefs that they have and that the things that are, are happening are, are literally killing people. So I feel very conflicted saying a lot of this. But anyway, a lot of the work that's been done with people who have left these kind of high high pressure, high conflict groups, new religions, whatever you want to call them, is that, you know, a lot of the time they get, like most of the time, they get themselves out sooner Mm. or later. Something happens. You know, sometimes it's when the prophecies have failed. Yeah, you know, which is Especially what we're viewing if, right now. What we're viewing now, right? The storm was meant to be yesterday and there was no storm and there's been so many people posting saying, you know, nothing's happened. I've lost so much. And it's almost like in each person's brain somewhere, there's a cost benefit analysis. You know, how much have I sunk into this? How much face am I going to lose if I change? Uh, how much face have I already lost by sticking to something that is quite obviously false? Mm. You know, and that's there's that constant cost benefit analysis going on for all the people who are invested in this and it's getting even worse now that it's being 
dispelled so publicly and that Trump is not still president and that Biden is president and sooner or later you can't keep denying that so a few things will happen some people will drop out but it will shift and it will morph and it will adapt to this new reality um so the idea of whether it's going to go away quickly and quietly I'm quite skeptical of but yeah. I would say if you do know someone who's involved in cute the best thing to do is to just try and keep some form of contact with them but without you don't necessarily have to try and talk about cute all the time um it's actually best if you're just there for them because then they won't feel like they've lost everyone in their family because people get dangerous when they have nothing left to lose there's like a lot of research in uh, recidivism you know um how likely people who have committed a crime are to reoffend again right yeah to just kind of make an equivalence and you have lower recidivism rates where that people are able to stay or re-enter their community um but it really depends on what that person is doing and what, like, what your level of kind of conflict with them is. Yeah. Um, it, it really varies. Mm. Like I have, I have a QAnon member of my family and you can, it, we can just not talk about it. Right. And that's, that's how we deal with it. But I think every situation is different. Um, I just, I get out. I feel like a lot of people think that the answer to conspiracy theories is information, right? You like, you got to tell them the truth. You got to speak up. You got to stand there and like get in their face and say, no, you're wrong on this. Look, it's completely incorrect. You know, there's not even a basement under that pizzeria. That's a pizza gate reference. <laughs> but anyway, so, you know, you can, you can sit there and do that, but I personally don't think the solution to conspiracy is information because conspiracy theorists have all that information already. They know what your arguments are. They know what the authorized narrative of these events is. They've already rejected it. Um, they've already decided everything from that source is a lie. And I personally think that the, the solution to conspiracy is, is actually humility. It's accepting that you don't know everything and you can't explain everything. Like getting into an argument with someone about, for example, the JFK assassination. Like the, there's so much you could learn about those events, right? And I've, I've read a tiny fraction of what there is about that event. And I just feel like the best attitude to adopt is like, I don't actually know. Like there's evidence of all these different things. Maybe there was something we don't know because there are government conspiracies, right? This is one of the reasons why conspiracy theorists are so hard to argue against and like disprove, right? Gulf of Tonkin incident really was a false flag and that started the Vietnam War, you know? There's all kinds of conspiracies out there. There's all kinds of things we don't know about that are going on at elite levels. There's all kind of pollution in the atmosphere. Okay, it's probably not chemtrails, but it's still totally beyond your control. And in a way, conspiracy theory is a, is a way of trying to like regain control over events and circumstances you actually have no control over whatsoever. Mm. Like there's nothing worse than being in America right now and watching all this stuff with Trump and Biden and just being like, I have no control. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i can go out and vote well i can't because i'm not a citizen but you know you can go out and vote but that feels so small and then then they're saying your vote's being taken away that even that one small act of choice of control they took that away from you because the election was actually rigged you'd be mad <laughs> it's scary and there's so many things that are uh unfalsifiable do you know what yeah. i mean like you 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 can say well, show me your proof. And then they say, well, there's tons of proof. It's everywhere. And it's like, yes, but where? And then they say it's everywhere. So you're, you're coming at it from such different sides that neither side can get to each other. And then really the only answer is to almost change the subject. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Susanna Crockford, we have been at this for an hour and this has oh, been gosh. an awesome conversation. I have learned so much. And I'm curious if you can tell me where people can find your work uh, if they want to know more about what it is that you do, because I'd imagine that you ignited some curiosity. So you can go find my book that is currently available. I believe it's on Amazon. I know it's on Barnes and Noble because I was pleasantly surprised that Barnes and Noble still exists. And you can get it from the University of Chicago Press website. It's called Ripples of the Universe. You can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, says S-U-S Crockford. Um, and there's a link to the book in there as well. 
And I mean, and if you're really into scholarship, then you can find my profile on things like Google Scholar and Academia. But that's like the really boring stuff. <laughs> I don't mean boring, sorry. But you know. What about social media? Can people Instagram. follow you easily there? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter, super easy. I mean, you can follow me on Instagram, but that's just like pictures of like nice bits of landscape that I like. If I would say if you want to follow my work and you want to kind of, find links to all the writing I do, you should follow me on Twitter. And that's at SoSCorkfit. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real thrill. Thank you.